morning we are going to be in the book of Exodus, chapter 13, verse 17, all the way through the end of chapter 14. Let me pray once more. Father, as we come and we look to your word, Father, we pray that as we open it, that your spirit would open our hearts and our eyes, and our minds, that we may see you and know you. Father, we ask that your Spirit would work in us through your Word, in Jesus' name, amen. You can trust a God you cannot see, but you cannot trust a God you do not know. You can trust a God that you can't see, But you can trust a God you don't know. That's a quote that I read from a Puritan a number of years ago that has stuck with me. Unfortunately, which Puritan it is hasn't stuck with me, so I don't know who it was, but that quote has stuck with me. How important it is for we, as God's people, to know our God. I've never seen God visibly, but I can trust Him. Because I know his nature. I know his character. But if I didn't know his nature and character, there's no way for me to trust him. As we've been going through the book of Exodus, that word know has shown up over and over and over. The God of the Bible has appeared to Moses at the burning bush and revealed his name to him. He's revealed himself to Israel. He has sent Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh and said, let the people go. And and Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should serve him and obey him? I don't know him. Ever since chapter 5, the chapters we've been in have been littered with that word know. I'm doing this that you may know me. I'm doing this that Egypt might know me. I'm doing this that Israel might know me. It's vital that we as a people know our God, if we are to trust our God. Our main point today is going to be this. You must know God in order to trust God. And in our text, I'm going to break it down into three sections. I think there's, well, there's a number of things we can see in this text that we can know about our God, but three main things. In chapter 13, verse 17, all the way through chapter 14, verse 9, so chapter, chapter 13, verse 17, all the way through verse 9 of chapter 14, we can know God is a wise leader. We can know God is a wise leader. Chapter 14, verse 10 through verse 14, we can know our God fights for his people. Know our God fights for his people. And then lastly, in verse 19 through the end of chapter 14, We'll see that we can know our God's saving power. can know His saving power. If you weren't with us last week, just by way of review, we were in chapters 11 through the middle of chapter 13, and we saw the Passover, where this last sign that God has given to Egypt to know Him, this last demonstration of His power, is He is going to have this angel of death come through, and anyone who does not have blood on their doors, there will be judgment. The firstborn will die. 
But for his people, and any who would believe upon his promise, if they would slay a blemishless, spotless lamb, and apply the blood on the door, there would be sparing of judgment. And God does exactly what he says, and Egypt and Pharaoh says, get out of here. We've had enough. And we end our section from last time with Israel for the first time being free. First time Israel is being sent out, a new nation. And that's where we pick up today. Chapter 13, verse 17. We can know that our God is a wise leader. Verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their mind when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you will carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel day and night. And the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people of Israel. Our first main point that we can know God is a wise leader, we're going to break it up into two sections. What we just read, the end of chapter 13, he leads his people for their good. He leads you, he leads us for our good. You're going to see in these verses we just read, over and over, God did not lead them, or God did lead them. Here we have a picture of a wise shepherd guiding his flock. And it's interesting, in verse 17, the first thing we see is where he doesn't lead them. It seems to be, geographically, Israel could just go straight into the promised land. Philistines are near. That's in the land of Canaan, the land of promise. They can go right in. But God doesn't lead them on the quick, easy, direct route. And we see why. In verse 17, Israel doesn't get this. We're reading this, getting the the behind-the-scenes reasoning. Israel doesn't have this. They just know there's a, a pillar going in front of them and they're following. But we know that God in his wisdom is not bringing them right into the land of the Philistines because they're going to have to face war. Now, this is a ragtag group of ex-slaves. They have no military training. They're not skilled in war. And God knows that if they were to go into the land, they would have to face war right away. And the people aren't ready. The people aren't prepared. It would so discourage them that they would turn around and go back to Egypt. Now, this doesn't mean that God is not going to put them in a difficult position. It doesn't mean that God is going to just give them an easy path. He just knows what they're able to handle and what they're not able to handle. Before we get too 
hard on the Israelites, just remember, they're new to following the Lord. They have been ignorant of Him for 400 years, to many degrees. They have bits and pieces that are passed down, but they don't fully know Him. They don't fully trust Him yet. And God is slowly going to grow their faith. So He doesn't lead them in the path of the Philistines. He does not tell them why, but in verse 18, He does lead them. Verse 18, He led them around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. So they're going to go the long way. And they go by the way of the Red Sea. We have verse 19, seems just randomly inserted there. Joseph has died 400 years earlier, and they still have his bones. Why does Moses include verse 19? Oh, by the way, as they're leaving, they're carrying bones with them of Joseph. Well, Joseph, knowing that God had promised his forefathers that they're going to be brought back into the land, says, I don't want to be buried here. I want to be buried in the land. He's got confidence. God will visit. God will come again, and he'll bring us into the land that he says. And we have verse 19 here as a reminder, God is faithful to his promise. Bringing these bones of a dead man into the land is a reminder to Israel, oh yeah, he said he was going to do this. And where are they? They're walking toward the promised land. God has kept his promise. And then we see verses 20 and 21 and then we'll slow down and apply this. God is not only leading them, He's leading them visibly. Pillar of cloud. Pillar of fire. And did you catch what we ended in verse 22? It did not depart. God is constantly with His people. Never leaving them. Never forsaking them. Always directing them. From the, these verses, we can see God is wise in His leading of his people. He knows how to guide. He knows what to, to bring them to and what not to bring them to. The same is true of us today. God leads you. He guides you. He guides us as a corporate body. And he knows what he's doing. We can trust him. He, he knows young Christians can't handle as much. They haven't been tested as much. So the testing doesn't come immediately, generally speaking. He eases, generally speaking, Christians into trials. He knows how much we can take and how much we can't. We have a picture here in these, these first couple of verses, just like Psalm 23. The Lord is our shepherd. He's the one guiding, directing, present with us. By way of application, I would say this. We need to be very careful to not criticize God's leading of us. It's very easy when things don't go the way we think they should go. Life doesn't happen the way we had planned it to say, God shouldn't have done it that way. I wouldn't have done it that way. I, I wouldn't be single at this point in my life, or, or I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have had this job say no, or, or this housing situation not work out. He shouldn't have done it that way. Very quick, or be very slow to criticize God's leading and directing of our lives. Because God knows what He's doing, and He leads for our good. And just like Israel, we don't have the behind the scenes reason for why everything does or doesn't happen to us. Why didn't you get the promotion, or why didn't that relationship work out? We don't always know. 
but we do know the who that's leading us. Don't always know the why, but we know who is leading, who's guiding, who's directing. Just like Israel, we know our shepherd, and he's trustworthy. So he leads for our good. In verse, or chapter 14, verses 1 through 9, he leads for his glory. He leads his people for his own glory. In verse 1 through 4, God is going to have Israel kind of act like a, a pinball. They're going to go from here to there, here to there. Then he's going to bring them to this point and then tell them to go back the other way and backtrack. And it seems weird. Why is he having them do this? Why is, why is he leading them all over randomly? Well, let's look at chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of that place that starts with a P, I do not know how to pronounce, between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal Zephon. And you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, of the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Just stop there. God is leading them in such a way where Pharaoh's going to look on and say, they're lost. They're lost. They're clueless. And look where they are. They're in such a strategic position. They have wilderness on this side, wilderness on this side, and they have a sea in front of them. They're boxed in. The slaves that we just let go, the people that were doing all of our work for us, that now we're without all of that labor, they're, they're ours. We can get them. Israel does not know why they're bouncing around from place to place and didn't go directly into the land. But God does. And look what he says in verse 4. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them. And I will get Glory. Why is God leading his people this way? For his own glory. He is leading his people in a place where they are going to be in a vulnerable position. In a position where, humanly speaking, they should be annihilated. And God says, I'm leading you. And I'm going to get glory. I'll get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts. And the Egyptians shall, here it is again, know that I am the Lord. So we read in verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed. Do you see, we've seen this all over the book of Exodus. You have this perfect balance between human decisions and God's sovereignty. God hardens his heart and Pharaoh changes his mind. Which one is true? And the answer is yes, both. Pharaoh decides, changes his mind. Why did we let the people go? God hardens his heart. They're both true. God is sovereign. Man is making responsible choices. And Pharaoh asks this question, what have we done in letting Israel go from serving us? All of these aggressive building plans. Remember in chapter two, chapter one and two, they're building cities. They're, they're not building just stuff. They're building cities. And he's like, the labor stopped. The work stopped. What did we do that for? Why did we let these people go? 
Remember, his concern was if they leave, they could join another army and come back and invade them. Why would we let them go? Look it. They're, they're by the sea. They got nowhere to go. Now's the opportunity. So he gathers up his chariots and his army, and he pursues them. And he overtakes them in verse 9. That means he catches up to them. So we end this first section. We see that God is wise in his leading of us. We don't know why. If you're an Israelite at this point, again, we're getting, he's not leading them here because they're not ready. He is leading them here to get, his, get glory for his name. They don't know all that. They just know that there is a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke going before them, and they're following. We, having the whole picture and having all of Scripture, we know the nature of the one who is leading us. We know as we open these pages and, and we read story after story of God's faithfulness, of his wisdom, of his power, the one leading us can be trusted. He can be relied upon. And he does all things, both for the good of his people and for his own glory. And notice they're not divorced. It's not like sometimes he does stuff for his people's good, sometimes he does stuff for his own glory. He does all things at the same time for the good of his people, growing their faith, growing their faith, growing their faith, and at the same time, receiving glory for himself. You can know... Your God is a wise leader. Secondly, we can know that our God fights for us. Verse 10 through 14. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. The first thing we see in this section is they're afraid. They're afraid of destruction. They lift up their eyes, and what do they see? Chariots coming. Again, this is the world superpower right now. This is the, the unrivaled kind of superpower militarily of the day. And the chariots are coming down. And again, this is a ragtag group of ex-slaves with no military training, and they know behind them is a sea, wilderness here, wilderness there, now superpower coming. Where are they going to go? And immediately, what do they do? Why did you bring us here? We would have been better off in Egypt serving the Egyptians. You see how much the circumstances have clouded their view? Do you realize how much all of the, the situation has become so large and looms so large that God has nowhere factored into their thoughts? That's what sinful kind of fear does. It, it calculates God out and only calculates the situation. There's an army coming, and they're better than us, and we got nowhere to go. We're doomed. We're doomed. Also, the hardship that they're in, the trial that they're in, 
has blinded them, them to the reality of what their past was. It would be better for us back in Egypt. Really? Back where they were having your firstborn thrown into the Nile? Back where they were oppressing you and making you make bricks with no straw? That's better? That's all they can see, though, is we'd be safer back there. We'd be safer back there. Israel has been delivered and likely assumes, well, once we're out of the land, once God has freed us, life is going to be easy. We're just going to have a life of ease. They, again, to be fair to them, they don't, they don't know yet. They've, they're new to this redeemed people thing. And they probably assume now life won't have trials. They don't have categories yet for God testing and trying his people to mature their faith. So they cry out and complain. Verse 13 and 14, Moses responds. And his response is, it's just a beautiful text. Verse 13, and Moses said to the people, fear not. You're afraid, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. Now has God yet whispered into Moses' ear and said, I'm I'm going to take care of this. No. But God had promised Moses that he's going to take the people out and bring them into the promised land. He has given him a general promise. I'm going to deliver you. And Moses says, hey, I know what the situation looks like. I I know that there's an army. I can see them as well. But God has made promise. Don't fear. Just watch what God does. And then... He makes this statement. For the Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Remember back in in the the first section, they couldn't go into the land yet because they weren't ready for war. Before Israel could enter into battle, they first needed to know that the one who will do the fighting for them is God. That as they have to draw the sword, as they will go into the land and have to fight battles, they need to first see that it's God who does the fighting for them. That as they enter into battle, they're not entering alone. As they enter into warfare, they're not the ones who are actually fighting. It's the Lord himself who fights for his people. He's showing them this. He's brought them to a place for their good where they have no human hope. There's no point in drawing the sword. They're going to die, humanly speaking, unless a miracle happens. And Moses says, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, the the God of Israel, he's going to fight for his people. He'll defend his people. He'll, He'll give victory to his people. And this begins a theme that will work throughout the entire Old and New Testament, that God is a divine warrior. God is the one who fights his people's battles. You'll see over and over, when when Israel goes into battle, if God goes with them, they win. They go into the promised land, and they come to Jericho, and they walk around the city, and then they blow some trumpets. They don't ever draw the sword. What happens? You know the song, the walls come a-tumbling down, right? They win. Why? Because God fights for them. 
They go into battle after battle. You see Gideon going with 300 people, and God fights for them and destroys the opposing armies. Sennacherib surrounds Jerusalem in the book of Isaiah, and they're mocking the Israelites. You're going to trust your God? Do you see how big our army is? Do you realize how many other cities we've surrounded and destroyed, and you guys think you're going to be any different? And they wake up, and the army is destroyed. God fights for his people. He fights your battles. Whenever Israel goes into battle without the Lord, they're destroyed. Remember when they're about to go into the promised land, they send in the spies, the spies come back, ten of them say, let's not go in there. Two of them say, let's go in. And the people say, let's listen to the ten spies, let's not go in. And God says, fine, that, that's fine. Just You're going to wander for 40 years in the wilderness until your generation's dead, and then the next generation's going to go in. And then the people say, on second thought, we'll go into the land and we'll fight. And the Lord says, but I won't go with you. And they go in and they're destroyed. Think of battle of Ai or Ai in the book of Joshua. There's sin in the camp. And the Lord says, I'm not going up with you. And they go up to fight this small little town. And they're defeated. When God fights for his people, they win. When God doesn't, they lose. God is on our side. You read in Romans chapter 8, if God be for us, who can be against us? You have a God who is on your side, if you're in Christ, who fights your battles. You can trust Him. You can trust His promises. You can trust His deliverance, His salvation. Lastly, and this is where we'll spend our time, trust His saving power. It's one thing for Moses to just stand up there and say, see the salvation the Lord's going to work. He'll fight for us. Anybody could stand up and say that. Anybody could stand up and say, the Lord's going to do something. The Lord still has to actually do it. Well, guess what we read in verse 15 through the end of the chapter. God fights for his people. God delivers his people. Verse 15. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall, in no, shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Now we have instruction. Moses Pick up your staff, the staff that we've seen over and over again, a symbol of God's presence and God's power through Moses. He says, wave it over the sea and it's going to part and tell Israel to just walk across. Well, that's what happens. In verse 19, we see divine protection. The angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So God is like, okay, I'm going to part the Red Sea, and in order for you to get across, I'm going to take this pillar that was leading you, and I'm going to go behind you, and I'm going to shield you and protect you. 
so that you can go across and the Egyptians won't be able to come and harm you or touch you because I'm going to protect you. So as they, they do this, verse 21, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And notice the Lord, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. And the waters being a wall, on them, wall to them on the right and to the left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch the Lord in the pillar of fire and the cloud of smoke looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic clogging their, we- their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. What happens? The Lord in his wisdom brings Israel to a place where they are hopeless and helpless on their own, defenseless, to show them, you can trust me. I will deliver like I said. I'm going to do it in such a way that nobody gets the credit but me. You, you can't say, well, we maneuvered our way around this army or we, we fled faster than... There's nowhere to go. God miraculously parts the sea. They go across on dry ground. And the Lord does so... Egypt goes through and he destroys them, judges them, gets glory over Pharaoh and ultimately delivers his people. There are a couple of things to point out in this text. Number one, do you notice the language? It sounds a lot like Genesis 1 verse 9 where God parts water and dry ground appears. This is intentional. He's he's pulling us back to Genesis to show us, remind us of creation. Why would he do that? Because what has been happening in chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14 is God is now creating Israel as a nation, a new people. And this new people will function, in a sense, like a new creation, where God is bringing a people back to himself, and they're going to the promised land. Which when we get there, if you keep reading through the Bible, it sounds a lot like Eden, does it not? Where there's overflowing milk and honey and, and all of this beautiful vegetation and fertility. God is creating a people that he's bringing to himself. He's restoring a people that were exiled, that were out of the land, and he's bringing them back to himself. As you read through the rest of the Old Testament, you'll get language, especially in Isaiah, that God is doing the same thing again. Israel, when you get to the book of Isaiah, is going to be prophesied. They're going to go to Babylon. They're once again, again, once again, not again, again, once again, 
going to be brought out of the land because of their sin. They're going to be exiled because of their sin. And when you get to chapter 49 and 51 of Isaiah, he's going to use the same language. I part the sea. I make a path through the sea. There's a coming new exodus where he's not just going to bring them into a land. He's going to give them new hearts. He's going to not just bring them into a new land. He's going to make them fully restored. Well, he'll bring them back from Babylon, but he, there's nothing different. They're still sinning. It's not until we get to the New Testament where Christ comes and he brings this perfect redemption, this perfect salvation where he will take our sins away and restore us fully to himself. He'll take our sins away and make us a fully new people, not just in a new land, not just in a restored place, but with restored hearts. And what we see here that God alone demonstrates his power to save is ultimately seen in the resurrection of Christ, where we have far greater enemies than the Egyptians. We have the enemy of death. We have the enemy of sin. We have the enemy of Satan. And at the cross, Christ defeats them all. Christ destroys death when he rises from the grave. He destroys the works of Satan when he rises from the grave. He destroys the power of sin when he rises from the grave and ultimately brings us into this restored, new, right relationship with him. We in the church are the new people of God, the restored, redeemed people of God. And we get a picture of that here. And notice how we end verse 30 and 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel. He saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. You can know God's power. More even than just parting the sea, we see God's power displayed in conquering death. When Jesus rises from the grave, when he conquers sin and death at the resurrection, we see the ultimate power of God. And here, God saves them. He delivers them through an act of his power. And it's no different for you and I. He saves you and I through an act of his gracious power alone. And the conclusion is, in verse 31, remember, they feared the Egyptians. Well, we end our text with them fearing God. They feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord. The Lord who had wisely led them, not directly into the land, but kind of pinballed them around and brought them to the Red Sea, so that he could demonstrate his wisdom, so that he could demonstrate his power, so that he could demonstrate his faithfulness to his word. And Israel sees it, and they believe. They see it, and they trust. They see it, and they grow in their confidence in the Lord. What about you? What about me? What about us? Are we seeing God's power and wisdom displayed all over the pages of Scripture, and growing in our confidence in Him, growing in our trust in Him. See, our knowledge of God and trust in God 
are not things that are separate and divorced. The more we know Him, the more we can trust Him. The more we see Him and see His faithfulness demonstrated in Scripture and just practically in our lives and season after season, the more we can say, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know why you're doing this, but I trust you. I don't see your hand and how it perfectly works, but I trust you. I know your heart. Spurgeon said, we'll just close with this quote. Spurgeon said, if you cannot trace God's hand, you can trace his heart. There are times when when you can't see why is he doing this, that, and the other. But we know the nature, the heart of the one who is leading us. The one who is guiding us. He's powerful. He's wise. He's gracious. He's kind. And he does all things for our good and for his glory. Would you pray with me? Father, we come and we praise you. We praise you that just as you demonstrated your power to deliver your people, you do the same for us. We praise you for Christ. We praise you for his victory over sin and death. We praise you that we as a people can collectively cry out, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? For our King has conquered them. Our King is powerful. And we praise you, Lord, that you know how to lead us. You guide us in ways that may not always be comfortable for us, but are for our good and for your glory. We pray that you would help us to trust you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.